This is The Rational Perspective. I'm Alec Hogg. In this episode, Sailor Milan, a war hero celebrated everywhere except in his homeland. It's over a decade since David Rattray was murdered at his famous Fugitive's Drift Lodge. Historian Rattray was a masterful storyteller whose tales of the 1879 Anglo-Zulu War and particularly the historic battles of Isantlwana and Rourke's Drift built him a global following that attracted packed houses when he went elsewhere in the world, especially in London. The obvious successor to the famous Rattray is chartered accountant turned storyteller Michael Charton, who works off a wider canvas, but like his fellow South African, specializes in forgotten stories drawn from the troubled history of his homeland. Charton, whose events at home are booked out months in advance, will be addressing London audiences for the first time this month. His first event was sold out within 24 hours. The second one, on Tuesday, the 30th of October, is filling up fast. I caught up with Charton to tap him on another fascinating topic, the story of Second World War fighter pilot Sailor Milan, a war hero written out of history by the apartheid government. To set the scene, I asked him to tell us a bit more about his work. What I primarily do is I tell a story, uh, a couple of stories, but one, in, one particularly called My Father's Coat, and that story involves five characters who I then speak to for about, it's a 90-minute story, which I, I travel through thousands of years, although focusing on the last 200. And, and the idea is really to provide some additional context about how South Africa got to the position it's in right now. I stop in about 1996. Uh, there are many, many people who speak about the politics of the day. My take is that there are amazing lessons to be learned from our past and that those lessons, in a sense, are separate from the, the, the politics of the day. Uh, yet, I, I believe they provide very powerful context and guidance, uh, and for me, healing and a sense of hope as to where South Africa is at right now. One of your favorite characters is a fighter pilot who played a huge role in the Battle of Britain, Adolf Milan. I guess he must have been teased a bit about the Adolf part of it, so he's better known as Sailor. Yeah, no, so what happened in terms of his name was that uh, Adolf Milan grew up on a farm in Wellington. And uh, as, a, as a young man, he went off to school and he was a, he was a typical farm boy, a and a capable young man who was riding horses and shooting guns and riding, driving the, the family car you know, by age 10. But he carried with him a sense of adventure. And as a young teenager, he then made the decision to join the Naval Academy, Academy at Simonstown. And his life really would take a very interesting twist. And, you know, I guess for the rest of his years, he lived the most extraordinary life. And so he spent his time on the ships for, you know, caught it north of a decade um, until in the mid-1930s, the Royal Air Force, who I guess sensed that there was some kind of military intervention coming, uh, all of a sudden was looking for, looking for pilots. At which point, uh, Adolf Milan, this adventurous young man, made the decision to jump across to the RAF, and I guess one of those rare pilots who had a background on the sea, and that was the origin of his nickname, Sailor. 
and, and of course his real name didn't count against him because at the time <laughs> there was lots going on about the other Adolf, but I'm sure he was grateful to have have a nickname that was uh, somewhat different. His name is actually a strange it's a strange thing. For whatever reason, the people who were closest to him, including his wife in later years, always recall always called him John. And I actually haven't really worked out what the reason for that was, but Adolf seemed to have disappeared quite early on in his life for mm. whatever reason. Why did he join the Royal Air Force? Well, I guess, as I said, he, he seemed to have the sense of adventure, the kind of adventure which, unlike many of his peers, saw him leaving school at a young age to, to take on something new and find something exciting in life. But I guess also he had, through traveling the world on, on, on ships, uh, had a maturity beyond his years and I guess had come to realize that there was something brewing in Europe and if there was going to be something to fight for, he was willing to do it. And uh, I guess that was where, when he joined, he, that was, you know, the idea was that it would be with a view to uh, defending the, you know, Western civilization as he sought. And becoming a pilot, it seems a long jump from be, being in the in the navy from Simonstown, a farm boy in Wellington, uh, to getting into a Spitfire. I think in these early days, it's, you know, to provide the, provide the context, you know, the world was full of polymaths. Uh, the world wasn't yet sufficiently complicated where people believed that they had to specialize a huge amount. I mean, in these days, we still had people who played both rugby and cricket for South Africa. You know, so, you know, joining, a, joining an Air Force after investing, say, 10 or 15 years, becoming a skilled sailor. The UK was required pilots. I guess they saw the, they saw the challenge. They needed to build their, their Air Force. They realized that this is where the future of warfare was. Air Forces were becoming increasingly important even by the end of the First World War. So by the time the Second World War was approaching, the RAF realized it needed pilots. So they took as many pilots as they could from the British people. And then they also put it out to the Commonwealth. And so what we saw was people joining the Royal Air Force from all over the, the Anzacs, the Australians, the New Zealanders, the South Africans, Canadians. And then very interestingly, also other parts of the Commonwealth, including India, Jamaica, Trinidad, Burma. And so we saw this very interesting collection of people's congregating in Great Britain to do their training and then what would ultimately be to fight for fight in the, in the, in the Battle of Britain. How good a pilot was he? There are, there's two sort of elements to it. One was he wasn't necessarily an instinctive pilot, yet on the other hand, he was an incredibly accomplished pilot, extraordinarily aggressive and very decisive in everything that he did. And once he was in the sky, he, he developed a particular style. He was hugely innovative. He, he changed the way that uh, the, the Royal Air Force were using formations. He, in fact, ended up writing a set of laws, 10 laws for, for air fighting, uh, which would later be stuck on the, on the, on the sort of cork boards right around the Britain, uh, the Air Forces of Britain. You know, he, it seems like what really set him apart was that he realized what he was good at. He was extremely aggressive by all accounts. He had an extremely accurate shot. But what really emerged in time was that he became very decisive. He knew how these air battles were taking place. He had seen enough of them. He had a lot of experience. And as such, he knew what to do and was able to command his people and his, his, um, his fellow pilots in a manner which proved to be hugely successful. When he, when he initially withdrew from active service in the skies, at that stage, he had the most, uh, he had taken down the most German aircraft out of any pilot in the Royal Air Force. He, he would be later, you know, certainly people in, in the end shot down more than him. But he emerged in the early part of the, of the Battle of Britain as perhaps the greatest legend that there was, uh, you know, as I say, in those early stages. And then he was promoted. 
presumably, because he, he stopped shooting them down from the sky and hopefully helped others uh, to get more proficient. Yeah. So, so, yeah, he was he was promoted to lead the 74 Squadron, a famous squadron in Britain who, who earned themselves a, a quite remarkable reputation uh, in the Battle of Britain, the Tigers. And yeah, so early on in the war, he was he was promoted to to lead them, 8th of August. But from that moment, that didn't mean he he sat down in the in the in the sort of base down below and told everyone else what to do. He he remained in the skies. In fact, long after he had been promoted to the position of wing commander, and he was encouraged not to enter the skies, he still continued to. In fact, so he was appointed to lead Squadron 74 or 74 Squadron on 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 the 8th of August 1940, and three days later was the most famous day. For him in the in the Battle of Britain, the 11th of August, a date which would subsequently be named quite simply as Sailors, 11th of August. Uh, what had happened was a fleet of Messerschmitt approached the coast of Britain, and 74 Squadron was sent off to to intercept them. And this one fleet of uh, Messerschmitt was then followed by three subsequent ones, which meant that the whole day Squadron 74 was battling off the south coast of of Britain, off Dover. And um, they managed to shoot down, by all accounts, 38 German aircraft in one day. Uh, what was the other interesting thing about Sailor Milan is he had this stone-cold presence about him. He described that day something like it was the, the end of a satisfactory day's fighting. You know, he really wasn't a hugely emotional man. He was a very stern, proud, determined, but quite quiet, typically staunch, you know, Afrikaner man. The good news about the Battle of Britain was that it stopped the Germans from getting dominance over the skies and then invading Britain, and I guess eventually that turned the war. But Sailor Milan himself had a interesting squadron, one that would have been very different from what he'd be, used, he'd be expected with the uh, very white South African uh, upbringing that he must have had. So 74 Squadron, like like all the squadrons in Great Britain, it was. It was a. They were a diverse group of people, and they boasted a diverse set of accents and skin colours, and cultures. And these guys fought together under extraordinary, extraordinarily difficult circumstances. The, the life expectancy of these pilots was a matter of weeks, and so these people were fighting under desperate scenarios. And I guess from what I can read, uh, these people of all these various cultures stood up and did an incredible job. Uh, showed extraordinary bravery and skill in defending Britain, but in defending Britain really in fighting off the evil presence, which was Nazi Germany at the time. And um, I guess these these diverse peoples, this, this Royal Air Force at the time, seems to have left a, a fairly indelible mark on, on Salem Milan, because at the end of the war, when the war had finished in 1945, he, he resigned from the Royal Air Force in 1946, and it seems to be that having worked alongside these very capable men from of all races and uh, cultures, he found it very difficult when he did return to South Africa in 1946 and we saw the emergence of race politics take place over the next few years, culminating in the victory of the National Party in 1948 uh, with D.F. Milan and his apartheid strategy. What we see is we see Sailor Milan then shifting his efforts as a famous fighter pilot uh, towards that of a, I guess, a, a man of protest, a man who stood up for the rights of these people who had fought and given everything for the war, often their lives, and now were being denied the fruits of their freedom. Yeah, so it was, a, you know, it seems to be a, a scenario which would have been very different from his life back in Wellington. But, you know, by the time of the, of the end of the war in 1945, he was a man who was 35 years old. He was a fairly experienced human being who'd 
lived all over the world on ships or, or lived in Britain. So he, he carried with him a modern view of the world uh, by the time, for, for the, you know, considering the time. And you know, I think for him it was just a matter of mere logic that freedom should be extended to all of those people um, who he knew were as capable as, as he was. Michael, tell us about the Torch Commando, because that's where he played a huge role. Yeah, so, so now you return back to South Africa and the apartheid government came into play in 1948. And, you know, Salem was, it seems to be a more of a man of action. So what happened was a lot of the, he wasn't the only man who had returned back to South Africa with these views. Many South Africans had, had fought in the war uh, alongside people of color and believed similar, similarly that they should, that, that their, that their rights to freedom was, was theirs, was reserved. And so, and initially, there were a few a few organizations which formed the Springbok Legion being the most famous. But then this evolved by the early 1950s into something called the Torch Commando. So it was a slightly more strident organization. And it was really, it would probably best be described as a protest organization rather than a political movement. They were now about, they wanted to literally stand up and protest against uh, what was going on. Um, Salem Milan believed that you know, this was not so much a political movement as it should, as it was a protest against what he believed was extraordinary inequalities and poverty, which was taking place in South Africa as a result of what was originally segregation politics, but then the slightly more uh, intense version, which was apartheid. And so they formed this group of which uh, Sailor, with his credentials, was uh, appointed the president. And something which I learned, again, like many of these stories, very late in my life, this organization became very powerful. They, at, at their peak, they had 250,000 signed up members at, at, its, at its biggest protest march, uh, which was to the Johannesburg City Hall. Uh, 75,000 South Africans walked to uh, protest against the apartheid government and its policies. And there, um, famously, Sailor addressed these people, one famous paragraph being, um, and I'll quote, the strength of this gathering is evidence that the men and women who fought in the war for freedom still cherish what they fought for. We are determined not to be denied the fruits of that victory. So this was a very powerful organization, which or what was at least perceived to be a significant threat to the National Party based on how they then reacted. And again, for context, during the Second World War, it was certainly not a unified uh, white South Africa that went to war uh, with the British. There were perhaps many uh, who, who had senior positions in the National Party that, that won the election in 1948 who were on the other side of the fence and celebrating history, uh, the victories early on that Hitler was achieving. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that, is a, that is a very important point in the story. In fact, it's one of the reasons I, I like Salem Alana as a man with whom to tell stories with, because certainly there, were, there was a reasonably solid voice in South Africa, which was certainly sympathetic towards Germany and in some cases actually vocally supportive of them and, and their policies. So what we find in, in current day South Africa, we find certain peoples who are divisive by nature. And Salem Milan is an, is, is an example of this. So he has a great many detractors. And when I put my story out to the world about Salem Milan through my YouTube video, um, I received some feedback from from these people, which I, I tried my best to understand, and and I guess it does link back to, you know, this anti-British feeling and and the the use of the word farrier, a traitor, which is such a, 
I guess, an emotive word in the Afrikaner language. And I, you know, I tried my, I try hard to get my head around it. Yet, at the other, on the other side, I feel I, I receive so many comments saying, Peace, this is a hero I wish I'd known more about, or amongst the elder generation, here was a man who either myself or my father were, he was our greatest hero. So he was a hugely divisive character. And to get back to my point, these kind of characters are beautiful to tell stories about because they're by, by they're inherently provocative. They, they force us into a state of introspection, which I believe is important for South Africans to delve into. But he has been written out of the history books. Uh, certainly when people like you and I were growing up in South Africa, there wasn't much in the history books to say that there was this great South African hero who fought in the Battle of Britain and uh, was the ace filer pilot of his generation. This is, a, this is another important part of the story for me, which again speaks to the bigger picture and, and you know, what I do for a living. But yeah, so Sailor Milan was, at the time, a great hero and well, very well known amongst South Africans. And certainly the elder generation will remember him reasonably well. But because he was a great threat to the National Party, here was this World War II fighter pilot, you know, swashbuckling hero, you know, good looking, sort of oiled across slick hair, um, you know, good looking man, uh, very influential if he needed to be. And here he was leading a very powerful protest organization. And so the National Party, I guess, took the logical step of trying to dismantle this protest movement. Um, they firstly made it, uh, they banned all members of the civil service at least to, to join the organization, uh, which I guess cuts a lot of their, their membership out. Uh, and a lot of their membership, it must be remembered, were, were high-profile people. These were judges and high-profile business people uh, who were members of this organization. So it was a genuine threat. And so, you know, this process of dismantling took place. The civil service were forbidden from joining the organization. And then that was followed in turn by a fairly intensive program of, of propaganda. Salem Alan himself was, was portrayed very poorly. He was at one point shown as some kind of a poodle uh, in, his, in his clothing. He was labeled a, a farrier, a, a traitor, alongside Smuts, and labeled alongside uh, the, great, the, the great Jewish businessman of the time, which... Uh, during that World War II time was still, for whatever reason, seen as uh, some kind of an insult. His legacy was downplayed, you know, to the point where eventually the Torch Commando no longer had the following that it, it, it dissipated. It disappeared in the end, and its memory would be strategically eliminated. We would not find it in our history textbooks at school. You would, it wouldn't be difficult to get your hands on the story of the Torch Commando, but it would at the same time not have been made freely available to young people growing up in South Africa for, for, for several decades. And, um, yeah, I, I, we're coming across this story and, and, and the route that had been taken, the fact that he was sort of systematically written out of the system, again, drew some appeal to me as to that this story, again, needed to be told. And, again, from my generation, the people in your 30s and 40s, you know, I got great feedback from people saying, geez, I just don't know, I just don't know how I've never heard of this guy before. And that really, you know, it's true. It is, there are many stories like this, which, you know, I'm passionate about, hopefully, you know, unearthing more and more of them. His legacy was, was trodden upon so furiously, really, that even in his death, uh, he was denied a military funeral. No one was allowed to wear um, uniform to his funeral, and the, the South African Air Force was forbidden from, from putting a tribute together in, in his death. So, you know, here was a great man who'd risked his life every day for a couple of years flying out to, to fight for freedom, who for political reasons was, was written out of the story. And, you know, it's a tragedy in its own way. I mean, one, one has to always in these situations try and place yourselves into the shoes of every, every side of the story. 
But, you know, having done so, it, it really remains for me a great tragedy that he, his name is not better known. Interesting part of this is if he were to have lived in the UK or in Britain, he would have been recognized everywhere he went, no doubt, asked to do presentations, etc. But he went back home to South Africa where uh, the ruling party wrote him out of history. Uh, did, he, did he die a, a bitter man? I, I believe he would have been fairly uh, unhappy with, the, with what was happening. He, he died in 1963, so he died... Uh, in the midst of the Ravonia trial, which you'll remember was two or three years after, or three years after the Sharpeville massacre, South Africa was in a process of really imploding a huge amount of protest action. And, and I, I guess somewhere down, deep down, he would have felt vindicated that these protests could have been avoided if, you know, if they'd taken steps earlier. Uh, but certainly South Africa was in a, a country in deep turmoil when he, when he did finally pass away from Parkinson's, uh, in 1963. So yeah, I, I, I hear what you're saying. I mean, if he had, if he had stayed in, in, in the comfort of Britain, where he would have been, yeah, could have been Sir, Sir Adolf uh, Milan, which you know sounds interesting. But you know, he, he came back to fight for a cause, and and in the end, in his lifetime, unfortunately, he was on the losing end of that fight. So he did continue fighting. Well, he he fought. I mean, I guess he he fought for the rights of of people until until he could no, he no longer could. Um, you know, he he definitely was was. Look, he, he wasn't. It seems to me not, he wasn't an anti-apartheid activist in the same way that we would come to know the word in the 60s and 70s and 80s. It seems that he was a, a constitutionalist, a man who believed, you know, one of the big things that he, he barked hard at was uh, the National Party, uh, which he believed were flouting the, co- the Constitution by removing the, the Cape Coloreds from the voting roll. And this became one of his big fighting points. In a sense, he was a constitutionalist. He felt the National Party were fascist. They were Doing things the way that they wanted to do, they were they were flaunting democracy. It seems like they weren't quite what we would call a struggle activist in the later sense, but he certainly fought for what he felt was right and for what he felt was a, a long-term democratic op- option for South Africa. Now, some of the surveys of the well, just at the turn of the century, put Winston Churchill as the greatest man to have lived, certainly in the Western world, in the 1900s, and Salem Milan had a connection with him too. Yes, I, I love these things in my stories. I love finding connections in them um, wherever I can. In, in the story of Salem Milan, you'll pick up two in particular. One is with his link to, to Winston Churchill, and the other was a, a quite an obscure link, which I, I just couldn't believe when I read at the time about a, a New Zealand rugby player called Donald Cobden. But the Winston Churchill link was something I picked up in the depths of the Internet. But, um, you know, when, when, when Salem Milan had finally died in 1963 and you know, he wasn't given much of a funeral at all. His son, Jonathan, who I actually had the privilege of meeting about a month ago in Johannesburg, he received a message from, from his godfather in, in, in Great Britain. Uh, and that godfather just happened to be Winston Churchill. And, uh, you know, again, for me, picking this up in the depths of the Internet later, I'd already researched this whole story when I picked this up again. Just, you know, so here was a, a man who we know nothing about yet. You know, the, the gravitas surrounding him was really quite remarkable. The letter uh, that Jonathan got from, from Winston Churchill read quite simply, My dear Jonathan, I was grieved to hear of the death of your father, whose deeds added luster to the name of the Royal Air Force in the great days of the war. Pray accept my true sympathy to you and your family, yours very sincerely, Winston Churchill. Uh, I mean, this is, you know, this is a South African guy who grew up on a farm in Wellington. You know, it's just a remarkable man who, yeah, I mean, just again, it just highlights the gravitas of of, of a man who was wiped off the history books for so many South African people. 
and the New Zealand rugby player? Yeah, so this this, this guy Donald Cobden, he was a he was a left wing for for New Zealand who played in, against the Springboks in 1937. And this happens to be another story I tell, and uh, I told this story for many years, but. Donald Cobden was tackled out of the first test by a famous East Griqualander, a man called Ebo Bastard, uh, and a famous tackle, which there's video footage. Uh, and then there's a video footage of Donald Cobden being carried moribund off the field. And as it turned out, he would never play for the All Blacks again. The reason I've picked up was that the All Black selectors believed that he wasn't brave enough to wear the All Black jersey again because he had gone off on a stretcher. So here Donald Cobden then joins the RAF in 1938, I told the story for many years how he had died on his 26th birthday on the 11th of August, 1940. So when I read it the 11th of August, 1940, that same date just, just rang a bell for me when I, when I was reading about um, Salem Alun. And so I went and did some research back to Donald Cobden, and sure enough, he had joined 74 Squadron. So that famous day where, where, where Salem Alun and, and his men had shot down 38 German aircraft now it just you know had this amazing overlap with the story I'd already told, and it's you know it's amazing for me these when you get these kind of connections that it's like a great sense of endorphins just flow across your body. It's almost like you get goosebumps when you realize how these stories that I tell weave together. And I guess it's you know it's a big part of my storytelling is to try and find these connections. I believe there's real power in them, but you know, for this was just almost like a random once-off. Uh, I just couldn't believe the link. It happened to be his 26th birthday on that day. Donald Cobden uh, shot down 10 miles off the coast. Uh, his body washed up on the Belgian coast. So, you know, for me, again, uh, almost emotional reminder of, you know, what this generation sacrificed. Donald Cobden features in another of Charton's very popular presentations, the story of the 1937 Springboks, rugby's first world champions. This has been The Rational Perspective. I'm Alec Hogg. Until the next time, cheerio.